Hello, and welcome to the Culture Cafe podcast, a place for learning and self-improvement. I'm your host, Mike Book, and I'm pleased to kick off season one of this podcast and bring to you people who have helped advance their respective fields and have made a name for themselves in the process. I'm constantly inspired by my guests with the knowledge they bring and love sharing what they have to say with you all. Please enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome to the Culture Cafe virtual studio. Here with me today is uh, Sean Guillory, uh, host of the SRB podcast, the Sean Russia blog uh, podcast, the weekly podcast on Eurasian politics, culture, and history, um, where he uh, interviews academics, journalists, pol- policymakers that focus on Russian, Eastern European, and Eurasian um, history, culture, politics, and so forth. Um, he's also the digital um, scholarship curator of um, Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of P- Pittsburgh, and he is a PhD in modern Russian history. Sean, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you? You know, under house arrest. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're I, <laughs> we're all locked down in quarantine in this uh, in these unprecedented times. Certainly. Um, I'm curious. Uh, you have very very impressive credentials. I've been following your podcast. I believe for I think close to three years oh, now. Thank you. And I'm just very like um, impressed at like the diversity of each interview that you hold. Mm-hmm. You go from like epidemics to, uh, you know, um, various, uh, let's say like, you know, the Soviet like nuclear industry, um, you know, various like, uh, you know, spheres within Russia, you know, Ukraine, the former Soviet Union and so forth. Like, how do you get your start? With the podcast. Um, well, I've, I've had, you know what, the narrative has changed, of course, over the years. But um, if I think about it, if I sit down and think about it, um, I, I've always had an in- interest in, in audio, I think. Um, you know, years ago, and I think sometime in the 1990s, I was starting to, I got a couple of these books about how to start your own, like, underground radio station. And and I did some, a, a little bit of stuff on the local Pacifica radio station in Los Angeles, KPFK. Um, so I, I think if I really think about it, audio has always been there. Um, and the podcast, I, I started this blog about Russia in 2005 when I first went to Russia to do some uh, dissertation research. And then uh, sometime, I think it was in 2009, possibly 2009, 2010, Marshall Poe, who runs the uh, New Books Network, which is a very broad you know, academic book interview network, um, asked me if I was interested in, in, in doing the Russia channel, the Eurasian channel. Uh, so I really got the, my start in podcasting there, and I, I, I should definitely thank him for that. Um, and I did that for a bit, and then I just kind of decided that, um, you know, I've had this blog for a long time, so maybe I would just start my own podcast. And, and that's really the kind of technical origins. But the other origins is... is you know, I started to, from doing this blog over like 10 years, I, I slowly began to realize that, um, you know, there is an audience out there for this type of material. Like, you know, there is a hunger for people who are interested in the region uh, for commentary or history um, that's, you know, more complex and more nuanced and more um, diverse than you would get, say, you know, from media. Um, and so out of that, I realized that, you know, if there's a, there's a hunger for that, you know, there's probably a hunger for all of this mostly academic work, which I feature. Um, and the problem really is access. You know, a lot of people out there who aren't PhDs, um, who aren't professional, you know, Russia people aren't going to consume academic works for a variety of reasons. One, they don't have access to them. You know, academic books are very expensive. Academic articles tend to be behind paywalls. Um, they're not really the best reads. Um, they're very detailed. <laughs> um, and and then also, too, you know, the other tragedy is, is that a lot of academics, uh, many people, you know, what I've done when I was publishing academic stuff, and then many of my friends who are academics, you know, they put a lot of work and, and a lot of time to produce these works. And the tragedy is, is that, because of the nature of academia and book publishing markets, um, nobody reads them. So the the podcast became a way 
for me to try to break that barrier of access and provide a, an audience, which, you know, for Russia and Eurasian, it's, it's, it's small. It's a very finite audience. I don't expect ever to reach millions of people. Um, but it, there's enough there. And, and really the challenge is to, you know, take what those people who are putting, you know, their life into these works and at least allow them to, you know, have people hear about the work that they do. And then along the way, maybe, you know, uh, educate people in how they understand that region. Um, th uh, that's very interesting. So I'm curious, like, how do you decide? Because you seem to, how do I say, like, you go from one topic to the next in Russia. Mm -hmm. Like, do you have, like, an overall mission? Like, are you trying to kind of, like, paint the most kind of, the most detailed picture of what Russia is, what Russia was. Ideally, but there is really no plan. The only thing I say that I think about when I decide, you know, who to invite is I, I make a very conscious point to provide gender balance. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think this is the only thing that I, um, you know, really kind of focus on. I, I don't want to have, you know, a, a pod, you know, invite guests that are weighed too heavily towards men uh, certainly. And of course, too heavily towards women, though, I don't really emphasize that. But I, I want some kind okay. of gender balance. I think that's really important, especially since, you know, the, the work that's being done, uh, let's just speak of Russian history, for example, um, mm -hmm. really is wonderful, uh, regardless of people's backgrounds, regardless of where they went to school, regardless of where they're publishing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and regardless of their rank as well. I mean, I, I'm totally open I don't need somebody to have a PhD to come on the podcast, right? I'm, I'm happy to have, and I've had graduate students. I, I, my only criteria is if they're doing something interesting. Right. Um, in, ter in terms of the topic diversity, you know, a lot of it is just, I, I, I have to confess, I don't have any kind of rhyme or reason. I just kind of see, oh, okay, that looks interesting. Oh, that looks interesting. And I, I have kind of a, you know, a handful of books that are sent to me, and I kind of just pick them out um, selectively. Um, sometimes I do try to, I mean, you know, if I would engage in self-criticism, I wish I, I gave more, uh, feature to, um, imperial history, um, pre-1917, for example, uh, literature, um, and, and certainly early modern Russia, which I think actually early modern Russian history is really popular amongst listeners. Uh, but, uh, and, and some other of the, the academic fields and disciplines, you know, because I'm, I know the history, historical field the best, um, I don't know, you know, anthropology, I don't know literature, um, I certainly don't know the arts. Uh, so a lot of that depends on people recommending or reaching out or just, you know, taking it, seeing something and then making a point to feature it. But I, again, I don't, I don't have any kind of overall plan. I probably should. But I don't. <laughs> just another problem is, too, is just like, you know, I'm doing this all on my own. So I, I don't really have like a team to work with to do that kind of planning. And, and because I'm trying to get a, a, an episode out every week, I mean, I'm sure you understand this. Like, you're just kind of like moving forward and you're not really taking the time to kind of step, step back and reevaluate re things. That's very true. Um, uh, so I'm curious. So um, with the current, you know, state of Russian politics, you know, ge you know, geopolitics and all that. Um, they're kind of locked in a very heated situation, one with Ukraine mm -hmm. today. And I guess now more so uh, with the Belarus. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any kind of insight on that? Any kind of thoughts, views on what's going on? Um, I mean, not specifically. I mean, in all honesty, I haven't been following these things very closely in the last six months, uh, if not a bit longer, because I, my interests have kind of shifted to some other things I'm working on. So I haven't been following the situation on the ground, so I can't really comment on that. Um, though, I mean, I will say, um, in, in terms of the podcast, I mean, I, I've, I've been asked to provide more attention to these, these very subjects. And, you know, I made a decision a while ago um, to not chase headlines uh, for a variety of like logistical reasons, but I, I just didn't want it to be that kind of show. 
Uh, you know, I, I started doing that at first and I it became increasingly dissatisfied because there, there isn't actually much diversity in the debate that's, that I find intellectually interesting. And if, if I do have a role to play in those kind of current crises is to at least try to provide like a larger historical context for these kinds of conflicts. And sometimes I've done it directly. One could maybe say I've done it indirectly in some certain interviews, but I just, one of the things that I think drew my attention away from a lot of the current kind of geopolitical issues um, are surrounding Russia and the wider region is that I just don't, at some point there's, I'll just say that they just, they just don't stimulate me in terms of, right? Like they don't stimulate me politically. They don't stimulate me intellectually. So I like to try to do other things. The one thing I will say um, is that in the fall at the University of Pittsburgh, I've been doing these series, speaker series, uh, where I've been doing series of recorded interviews based around a topic. This is like I did the one on nuclear. I'm finishing one on socialism. There's going to be one on U.S. Russia. Uh-huh. Um, but that one, too, is not going to be like the current state of U.S.-Russia relations. It's actually going to – the idea is to look at U.S.-Russia relationships since the early 19th century. So – a couple of the things I have planned on doing is to do and uh, to have a scholar who does, say, American slavery, a scholar that does Russian serfdom, and do an interview about that. So it's a lot about the kind of commonalities of, you know, these two places that we don't normally think about. Uh, that, that's very interesting. Um, speaking of that, uh, I, I believe it was, I think that episode came out in roughly summer 2016 i was listening to a russian podcast it's called uh, arzmas radio no yes Mm -hmm. and i remember um i think they were covering they might have been covering like u.s russia relations in the in the 19th century uh, but it was like focused around catherine the great they Mm -hmm. mentioned that she was one of the first supporters in you know uh, of of america in the war of 1812 Mm -hmm. and the revolution too and the revolution and she um she looked at the U.S. very highly, specifically their engineers, and she invited U.S. engineers to build, start building the Russian railway network mm-hmm. in Russia. Yeah. And the gauges t- to this day are that of what the U.S. was then, but <laughs> the U.S. then never had like a standardized, at the time didn't have a standardized rail gauge network, so all mm-hmm. of them were different. Hmm. So. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, so this is the kind of stuff that I, I'm interested in, and, and you know, in, in thinking about like, the the kind of interchange between the United States and Russia, the fact that, you know, for much of the 19th century, the United States and Russia were actually either at some points allies or tacit allies, um, how the how each nation kind of saw itself in relationship to the other. Um, you know, these are the things I, I'm kind of I'm really interested in to kind of to get to to get us my mission for for this like series that I'm doing is really to get beyond this Cold War framework that dominates the conversation that just doesn't apply anymore. Um, it's kind of like the way I see the kind of Cold this Cold War framework and the, and the discourse around looking at U.S.-Russia relations in the Cold War framework today is almost like a, a nostalgia from both sides, a, a time going back to trying to rehabilitate a time where each power one could say was at its peak civilization, you know, depending on who you ask, of course, but, you know, you can, in a way, this kind of struggle brought out, um, you know, made both the uh, superpowers. And I think there's a nostalgia for that. That's kind of unrecognized in a lot of this rhetoric. Yeah. I mean, that level of like heated competition, you know, I guess, forced both to rise. Yeah. I mean, ironically, like you can't, you can't, I don't think you can make an argument against the idea that both American and Soviet science were at their height, you know, in terms of the investment, in terms of the, 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 its national importance, in terms of its reflection of, of each nation's kind of image of itself. Right. I mean, these are things you can't even, you can't even comprehend today. Um, except as, as like, you know, 
a going back to uh, recovering those like better times, quote unquote, even though both countries were at the brink of nuclear destroying the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically. Yeah. So. Uh, but that's why uh, I love what you're doing. Like uh, there's so many, like so many people I know that like, you know, I guess Americans looking at Russians that um, they see this caricature. So right. I remember in the um, actually it was also 2016. Well, 2016 was a big year for me. <laughs> um, but uh, I visited uh, Russia, and obviously mm -hmm. summer it's hot. And I remember I told uh, I think the CEO of uh, the company I was working at at the time. Um, I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to you know visit you know family in Russia. He's like, oh, must be cold. Are you going to bring a winter coat? <laughs> no, it's like uh, it's ridiculously hot in the summer. It's it's. It's not this Russian, uh, I'm sorry, this uh, snowy winterland all year round. Well, you know? you know, that's really, you know, it's funny you say that because I remember the first time I went to Russia in the early 2000s and and it, it really was striking how the Cold War kind of, you know, me, I grew up in the 1980s, right? So this wow. is kind of my, my, you know, my memories are like Evil Empire, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Rambo films, Red Dawn, like all of this great, I mean, and I mean this series, like great Cold War movies that are just that just don't exist anymore these like really heroic awful propagandistic movies but nonetheless um you know i remember going to russia first time and, and being really struck how like in moscow for example the buildings are painted all sorts of different colors <laughs> and 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 this sounds like completely you know admittedly incredibly naive but you know, you know to me it's similar to the response you just you just you know um related i didn't think i thought everybody everything is kind of gray and depressing and blah 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 right so it really to me it was a kind of shock to how structured my own brain was to all of these tropes um yeah and um i also like the similarities between the u.s mm -hmm. and you know russia um i would say like the mentality is not that different like uh, i guess this goes along with um what you were covering with Russian conservatism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, like a lot of my relatives that I guess, I mean, some lean, you know, Democrat, others, lean, uh, you know, lean Republican and the Republicans very, very close. Mm -hmm. Like the whole mindset is close. It's like, Oh, you know, if a does not equal, you know, if a and B don't add up, it, it won't equal C, you know, right. you have to do this, this, and this to get, you know, the result, you know, it's, there's no magic you have to, you know, um, so, like, do you have any like uh, like thoughts on that? Yeah, and and this is kind of my this is why I tend you know my interest in in dealing with the United States and Russia is to to think about more of the commonalities than the differences because each nation tries to imagine itself as the opposite of the other, right? Uh, and and a lot of in, in certain levels of its national identity are based in othering, say, Russia or Russians othering the United States, but. We have to deal with the fact, and and even though the political history of each country is quite different in terms of its political structures, however, I think we need to give some serious thought, and, and many historians are, have done this or are starting to do it more, in the fact that, A, both of these um, countries are based in a form of settler colonialism, um, and and it, it's, it's a continental empire that spreads over space that makes it uh that confronts indigenous people so the question then is is how does each state deal with indigenous people um there's the question of uh frontiers Con the fact that each state is from the be very beginning a multi-ethnic multi-confessional society they are not nation states in terms of say france or germany or any of the other most european states um, they both had systems of human bondage. Um, they have both fought civil wars. Um, they both have ethnic violence. Um, you know, one of the interviews that I would love to do in this series is one looking at uh, anti-Jewish violence and anti-Black violence. Because one of the things that we need to remember is that the height of both of these this type of racial violence is occurring around the same time <laughs> right you know the kishinev pogrom in 1903 is during one of the hot periods of racial violence 
The same thing with the 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 pogroms and racial anti-Jewish violence of the teens into into the night into the Russian Revolution and Civil War. Racial violence in the United States is at its height in 1919. So, you know, these are the things that I think are worth thinking about and how, uh, and st- you know, how each country dealt with them in a variety of different ways. Um, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's very, that's very interesting, uh, you know, to see that parallel. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it, I, I, the other thing too, is yeah. that both of them, both of them are, like I said, continental empires and they are empires and, and the history of those empires and how they've receded and retracted or tried to even, you know, understand themselves in different states or in different ways. Um, there's this wonderful book that just came out this past over this past year by uh, I believe I forget his first name, but it's is Immerwald. It's it's called How to Hide an Empire, uh, and and it's an excellent look at the idea of the turn of the the 20th century in the United States of the Greater America, right? Um, so you know, there's I think the point being is that there's just a lot of issues that are worth looking at that kind of intersect in both places. Yeah. In uh, in 2009, there's a there's an author, um, I, I believe his name is George Friedman. Mm-hmm. He uh, released a book called The Next Hundred Years, hmm. and he mentioned that in the 20s, the 2020s, or I'm sorry, the 2030s and the 2040s, Russia will try to you know kind of match the U.S. Mind you, this is written in 2009. Mm-hmm. We'll try to match uh, the U.S. Uh, militarily, and again, kind of confront it on the Cold War level, and then it'll begin to disintegrate due to um, you know, social issues, socioeconomic issues, ethnic issues, and so forth. Uh, from, I don't know if you've been, I mean, you mentioned that you don't really like follow the headlines or anything, mm-hmm. but um, the way, from what you learned, the way uh, Russia is operating, you know, since the collapse of the Soviet Union to today, mm-hmm. um, is there a rise in ethnic tension? I understand there's like a, a definitely a rise in socio, uh, you know, economic tension with all the, you know, protests that we've seen and so forth. Um, what do you see happening, like from um, your in terms of in terms of it inside Russia? I, I think this is a the the issue of ethnic tension, conflict, and violence. I think is something that the Russian state is very sensitive to. I think the Putin government is incredibly sensitive to it, and they fear it a lot. Um, and and I think that this is how I I sometimes understand why. They, they do, the way they operate is what I call, they, they kind of control, discipline or control the margins. So on the one hand, they try to eliminate or, or repress ethno-nationalism in Russia. And they've done this throughout the 20th century, even during the Soviet period, right? It's, therefore, it's like, we don't like Russian nationalism, and we don't like, you know, minority ethnic nationalism. Because I think they rightly understand, because of Russia's multi-ethnic character, that this could really become not only a flame of, of violence within the country, but also the disintegration of the country. Because it's not a nation state. There's no, it's not a, you know, despite what anyone says about Russian nationalism, it's not a very strong ideology as a form of governance in Russia. It, it actually never really has, except for certain periods of its history, you know, during Alexander III, for example, or, you know, Putin makes these kind of, you know, throws some red meat to the ethno-nationalists. But honestly, like, the fact that most of these people have been put in jail and street nas- Russian nationalism, ethno-nationalism is that a very, is very, like, not a, a potent force. Um, and, and you can see similarly in how it treats... Eth, you know, non-Russian ethno-nationalism, the same kind of thing. It doesn't like it. Um, so I, I don't see any kind of issue brewing except for I think some of the lingering problems in terms of these questions has a lot to do with immigration because the Russian Federation is highly reliant on migrant labor, uh, particularly from Central Asia. At the same time, it has this history of Central Asia being part of a greater Russian empire. So how do you like square these issues of like, well, 
they were once part of us, but they're not anymore, but we also need them, but we can't like have ethnic violence, mass ethnic violence against them, but we kind of have to play to locals and, you know, we can't completely just say, oh, we love all immigrants, right? They have to play this dance to satisfy very many different like aspects of Russian society. Uh, so I think that's that's one major issue, it, it, particularly as as concerns about immigration uh, and, you know, the quote unquote dilution of the nation uh, seems to be on the rise throughout the, various places around the world. Right. Um, when the Soviet Union collapsed, you know, the Russian Federation was, a, you know, the main successor state for at least the Russian um, uh what is it, SSFR, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, with it came the return of, you know, the, the tricolored flag, mm -hmm. all the Russian symbols, like the double-headed eagle and so forth. But um, at least looking at it today, it still feels very much like the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. kind of oh, same really? Same ministries. Oh, yeah. Um, in, in that sense, I mean, mm -hmm. the structure. Um, and... That makes sense because, uh, you know, during the Bolshevik Revolution, they literally ripped out root and stem their history, I would say. Um, do you see that on, uh, you know, from your studies? In terms of the, con the continuity? Yeah, like essentially it's not the it's not the return of the Russian Empire. I mean, oh, like, you know, pre-1917 state. No, no. Um, I mean, they can't do it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> they couldn't do it even if they wanted to, right? They, they just you just couldn't have a you couldn't have a Russian Empire like you had in in the, the pre-revolution. Even during the Soviet Union, you couldn't have it today. It's just it's just not not possible in any kind of you know raw economic or military force. Um, however, I will say that you know one of the things I'm interested in this issue of like continuity, right? You know, you've, you've been to Russia, you can still find statues of Lenin, you can still find Soviet symbol symbolism on the, the facades of buildings and all of this stuff. You still find a lot of monuments that were erected during the Soviet period. There hasn't been a, you know, at least a, um, aesthetic decommunization. Um, and, and I think I, I you know, I, I've thought about this a lot in terms of the problem that, um, the collapse of the Soviet Union faces for Russia in the last 20 years in terms of its national identity. Because, you know, during the late 18, 1980s and into the 1990s, there was a, the so Soviet, anything Soviet became taboo, right? And you had this because uh, you the, the media and scholars were now open to discuss crimes under Stalinism you know, the crimes of the Soviet system, you were able to talk about the history more open, the memory more open. Um, but this, this eventually fell out of fashion too, out of, in, in, except for in some quarters of Russian society today. And I think this is indicative of, you know, when the Soviet Union collapsed, it posed a question for Russians, what, what does it mean to be Russian, right? So on the one hand, this question is, is a very visible one for ethnic Russians that say we're living in Kazakhstan or ethnic Russians that were living in Estonia or, or the other Baltic states. There's that question, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of them repatriated, uh, especially right. from Central Asia. But the other question is, you know, what do you do with the history of the last 70 years? You know, what do you do with the fact that the majority you know, at least until the mid-2000s, the majority of the country grew up under this old system. You can't throw it all away. You can't just say, oh, we were all dupes of this evil system and et cetera, et cetera, because these are people's lives you're talking about. You know, these yeah. are people's experiences. You know, and, and to me, this explains why you get like this nostalgia back in the, in the mid to late 2000s that you know, still operative today is that, you know, people are like, you know, what do I, how do I understand, how do I narrate my life? But the bigger question I think is, you know, and I think the Putin government has done, has put a lot of effort into this. And that is to not, to, to smooth out the breaks of Russian history over the last, you know, 150 years. Therefore, Today's Russian state is a continuation of the Soviet state, which is a continuation of the imperial state, uh -huh. right? So the civil war is bad, 
we're going to reconcile, like, repatriate all these, like, you know, remains of whites. We're going to say Lenin destroyed whatever and blame him. You know, you're going to pick your enemies and you're going to pick your conciliations. You're going to make Nicholas II a saint. At the same time, you're going to make Stalin a good manager, right? <laughs> you're going to you're going to create you're going to create um, a, a myth of identity that everyone can more or less agree on, i.e., the victory over Nazis in World War II. Like this right. is the sacred. You know, you can't go to the revolution, celebrate. you can't do all those Soviet holidays anymore, but you can still do one. And that's the, the, the victory, the World War II victory. And that is the basis for like creating a collective uh, united country because everyone was affected by that in their own family history, right? Mm-hmm. Even from the, you know, if you look at the media around May 9th, like even from the, the, the most liberal to the most conservative, they may have differences of opinion, but everybody is more or less on, recognizes that as a sacred event. Yeah. Uh, so, and you know, this is an, this is another way to create that continu- continuity between this system. So, this is this is what I mostly see. You know, there's institutional like reproduction. You know, the FSB is a reproduction of the KGB, but you know, the the Chaka was a reproduction of the the third section and the Tsarist secret police. I mean, unfortunately, state. You know, but for the most part, states state institutions don't radically change too much. Um, right. You know, they tend to reproduce themselves, uh, though they don't stay the same. Of course, I don't want to suggest that there hasn't been some major differences, but you know, yeah. Um, so basically, they like from what I've seen of what I read. You know, when the Bolsheviks came to power, they tried to destroy. I mean, they didn't try; they did. They uh, eradicated. You know, the aristocracy. Um, they, uh, you know, started. I, from the way I see it, like essentially like destroying the history, like all the you know former stars were you know terrible, horrible, you know, and slowly they started bringing it back, and mm-hmm. like even. After you know, when the Soviet Empire uh, fell, very similar thing to what you mentioned. And yeah. now it's almost like they're saying, "Okay, we need a collective national history, and this is what we're all agreeing on." Right. And forward from there. Um, you uh, did an interview, I believe, in 2018, um, that said it covered the fact that Russian youth. It's almost like they look down at kind of the I guess, end of the Soviet, you know, kind of history when they were roughly born or like, you know, or when they were born right after like the Soviet collapse and everything they do is kind of Western. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, all, all, I remember um, um, the interview mentioned like themed restaurants, like, you know, yeah. kind of like Texas Burger Grill, which, you know, Texas Burger Grill and, you know, the heart of Moscow. Like, right. What is that? You know, right. that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, like, how do you see... Um, you know, the youth reconciling with this history? Oh, that that's actually a really interesting question because um, I, was in, I was in Russia in October and I hadn't been there in six years. So a lot had changed. Uh, and a lot had changed in ways that I didn't exactly expect. And one of the things that I found really fascinating about young people is my impression of when I was there in the mid-2000s there is this kind of Western fetishization, right? Everything, the West was in, like as it had been in during the Soviet period amongst, you know, certain quarters of society. It was like the the way to rebel kind of thing. And and then, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, that West became the, the, the model to emulate. However, what I noticed in October was that no longer is operable. I mean, you still have some that buy into this kind of fetishization, but what really struck me, um, and and this was also from talking to friends, uh, was that, you know, young Russians who can afford it, who travel to Europe, to the United States, they go there and they just kind of shrug their shoulders, and rightly so, because they recognize, oh, we we have all that shit too. Right there's nothing there's nothing special about the United States or or Western Europe anymore. It looks just like, you know, if you go to New York and you go to Moscow, 
it has all the same shit. The only difference is, is maybe New York has some things that are better and Moscow has these things that are better. But for the most part, you know, whatever you want to do, you can find it. Mm-hmm. And I think this is really powerful because what I what I notice is that there there is a how do I want to put this? There is a there is a certain restoration of a of a pride in that, well, we don't need to model ourselves on anyone. We could develop our own model. And for some, that may be like, what can we like when in looking at the Soviet period, and I see this and I see this uh, in social media a lot. It's like it's less about like looking like, oh, this was done, this was done, all these horrible things. It's kind of like, well, what can we what can we learn from it? You know, what can we maintain? Like, what has what did it give us, and what did we lose when it left? Um. So in, in many respects, and that's just not young people. There's a lot of people who are doing it. And, and to me, that's a much more healthy, a healthier <laughs> try, trying to evaluate one's history is like, okay, all of this, to be honest about like, yeah, you know, all of these horrible things happened. But we also got, you know, a lot of these other things happened uh, that benefited us and continue to benefit us. Um, so I think there's there's this less of this kind of looking abroad for a sense of self on this in this aspect in other aspects particularly i think at the state level it's a it's different but at least in the population there's nothing special about being european anymore right that's that was my sense at least and i i actually welcome that yeah no i i think you're i think you're definitely right because already enough time has passed for kind of the gap to be bridged Especially, you know, the internet now is, you know, permeated the entire globe. Um, they use, um, let's say, at least like a Russian youth, like they follow a few um, people, like usually like uh, you know, athletes, um, and they they're on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, they actually, I think they're obsessed with Instagram and YouTube. They write like for comments, they write essays. Yeah. <laughs> even the way they speak, it's peppered with English. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is which to me, I mean. Let's say if I was, you know, I don't know, Russian purist, I would say, oh, that's terrible. Right. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, but uh, for, uh, I view it as kind of, you know, the communication being gapped. Like their mindset is, you know, pretty much the same as ours. You know, their you yeah. know, goals, aspirations the same. So I think that could be a good stepping stone for, you know, international relations and like, you know, bettering the friendship. But I, actually speaking with, um, speaking of, um, uh, you know, English permeating the Russian language, I, I noticed that. I grew up in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was, I was uh, pretty much around the time I was born. That's when the Soviet Union collapsed. And uh, around, let's say, I don't know, the early 2000s, I noticed that every five years, um, certain English words would be, let's say, like mm-hmm. like for printing. They would say, like, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it switches every five years. Yeah. Do you notice these waves of like I don't know Russian lingual um, patriotism like resurging? Yeah, I think I think you get that. I, you know, there's certain, and I think that the tensions, that the kind of larger geopolitical tensions, even if somebody isn't totally plugged into them, they tend to permeate, you know, to everyday life, whether you recognize them or not, by virtue of the fact that you know the, the language that we use in everyday life, it either comes from our experience with our peers. Or it comes from media, right? The media has a very a lot of power in providing the very language we speak and how we formulate phrases and concepts, uh-huh. um, and without us even really knowing it. Uh, so you do get that, like things are referred to differently. Um, but I don't see it. I don't see it as indicative. I see it more as the the valences of the way culture changes and morphs and moves, rather than any kind of. I don't attribute much meaning to it. Um, you know, except for maybe, maybe there's in some instances, there's a conscience reclamation of a Russian word for something. Um, but besides that, I think it's more like cultural trends. Um, I do think, you know, you know, this is why I, I kind of formulate things in certain, in a sense of pride. Um, and, and by that, I don't mean any kind of like patriotic or nationalist ideas, but more in a sense that we are not. Like, we are on par with everyone else. We're part of an international, global culture. Now, granted, American culture, I think, has a disproportionate amount of influence and power. 
over that, right? You can just see, you know, you can see how Russians relate to American television, <laughs> right? There's a kind of, you know, but there isn't a lot of, there isn't a lot of, there isn't the, the kind of envy. Um, I mean, maybe certainly for some people, but, you know, there isn't a, you know, there isn't this kind of animosity and envy, maybe a bit of jealousy at some point, but, you know, right. but, but in terms of like the, the Russian film industry is producing films, b- both shit and good films, just like any other film industry, right? Very, very true. <laughs> yeah. So in a sense, it, I, I guess that, I guess what I would say is it just kind of normalized, it becomes normalized. Right. And not inflected with all of this kind of political meaning that might have been attributed to, you know, it been attributed to in the past. Yeah. Um, I noticed that uh, several friends and family, um, those that have more conservative mindsets mm-hmm. have way more uh, Soviet nostalgia, meaning... Um, I guess, you know, during the Soviet Union, the, I feel like the reason why people are so nostalgic, aside from that, cannot, like, I guess the social safety nets that it held mm-hmm. um, was that it achieved a great amount in technology, let's say like IE, the space race, right. in, uh, in science and sport. So uh, like all my friends that are like more like conservative, um, they usually like when it comes to sport, they have a very kind of like Soviet mindset. It's like, come on, you have to, you know, be a man, you have to right. you know, lift X amount of kilos, or pounds, <laughs> whatever. Um, whereas my other friends who are liberal, mm-hmm. it, you're correct. Like they're not like, oh my god, America, yeah, you know, oh, you know, kind of, it's not the early nineties that yeah. you know they're in love with it, nor Europe. Um, they're kind of they see it as we're all one, kind of that like the Western, you know, mm-hmm. Western civilization. We're all one, we're all modern, we're all have, you know, like whatever smartphones, you right. know, we have liberal views. And that it, it kind of like the borders are erased. So uh, do you kind of have any thoughts on this kind of dichotomy? I mean, to me, this to me on one level, it's incredibly normal because you can, you know, you can walk as you you can live in American society and see the same stuff, right? You can see and you see it articulated, unfortunately, more and more of this kind of like America first, America best, America, which, you know, every time there's this kind of the kind of rising of this discourse of we're the best, we're the first. It's 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 more of an indication of loss than it is an actual reflection of reality, right? Because if you really are the best and you really are the first, you don't have to go around declaring it all the time, <laughs> right? And you know if you don't you don't have to say that I'm the best if you really are. You say it when you're not. <laughs> um, so and I think you know for for people who this kind of nostalgia for the Soviet system amongst older people, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, it's kind of like that was the time in my youth uh that was the time that i'm familiar with and that is the time where i look around today and that's not there that's what's absent you know and and the other the thing about nostalgia right is you don't you don't lament the loss of things that you didn't like (laughs) (laughs) right so you know to me it makes complete sense that you would have more nostalgia amongst more conservative and and you know older people just because for them that that memory is when they were you know they were in the the young mid you know young times of their life it was like the good times um you know this is why you know just me like I listen to more music from the 1980s and 1990s <laughs> just because it's more familiar to me and is what I know and I don't know. I'm not going to seek out anything new, really, except for a select cases. So, um, again, I don't attribute outside of the, the danger is when this these attitudes are politically mobilized. And that's the thing. When this is politically mobilized against others. So, you know, we're not great anymore because those people are ruining it for us. The immigrants the the people of color the poor whatever you may call it the the foreigners you know the 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 machinations of the united states against us or the russians against us this is when it becomes a problem uh because then you get you get the creation of these you inflated of these you know enemies that are used politically um, you know, we saw this around Russia with Trump. We see this with the discourse around America 
in Russian television, uh, in, you know, speeches by Putin and his people, this is when I think it becomes a major problem. But at the same time, I have to say that I think most people, regular people in the world or in both countries, let's say, don't actually, you know, if you met in Russia, if you're an American and you meet Russians, they they don't necessarily buy into that stuff. You're just a person and, and vice versa. You know, I don't think here in Amer- most many Russians here in the United States have had any problems uh, with this kind of Russophobia uh, that came out of 19 to 2016. Uh, you know, though there are exceptions, of course. I mean, yeah, no, that's true. Um, yeah, I was going to say that, um, you know, I guess including China and this uh, issue. Yeah, right now is being politicized. Yeah, absolutely. And you do have and you do have instances of violence. I mean, this is what's really disturbing. Not only do you have instances of violence on a local level, you're having this utilized and fomented by the government and figures right. in the government and figures in the media. And this is this is absolutely unbelievably disgusting. You know, yeah. wh- wherever it's occurring. And and like I said, that's the real danger because then it creates like it creates a situation where you know, that person is opposite of me. We have no common space, no commonalities. Right. And um, so right now with all, you know, since 2016 and the so-called, you know, fake news topic, um, like Russia, the Soviet Union had a history, and I guess I think maybe China is doing it now. I'm sure the U.S. is doing it, but, you know, obviously it's not being reported. Um the fact of spreading of conspiracy theories, you know, China is doing even their foreign ministry is saying that the U.S. Army planted, uh, you know, the coronavirus COVID-19 yeah. in Wuhan to spread to, you know, the, whatever, cripple them. Right. You know, and Russia, I'm sure, is kind of playing both sides. I wouldn't be surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, how do you combat that? Because right now it seems that it's a slippery slope. I don't really know how to combat the prevalence of conspiracy theories. Um because I don't think more accurate, rationally based scientific information actually does a lick of good against them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's it, it's it's kind of a defeating battle to say, well, you know, here is the proof. Well, conspiracy theories aren't based in facts, right? It's, so to throw facts at them. It's just reincorporated into this is just part of the bigger conspiracy, <laughs> right? You're creating all these facts because I know the inner truth. For me, for me, I think what and the people who've been looking at the prevalence of conspiracy theories, and I've I've interviewed a couple of people, you know, about this in Russia, and I'm actually doing another interview in the coming weeks about it. Um, to me, it's more reflective of a time. Why do for me, the, the interesting question is, why do people gravitate to conspiracy theories? Now, some of them, you know, clearly it's cynical. You know, I don't doubt in my mind. Well, I mean, maybe maybe Putin believes this stuff. I, I don't know. I can't get in his head. But, you know, what people, I think, hold on to conspiracy theories because it gives an explanation to something that they have a difficult time understanding. It provides, however, you know, however perverse this may sound, it provides a rationality over an irrational situation. It's much easier to, to, to kind of comprehend that the coronavirus was developed in some lab somewhere in China or that it was developed in some lab in the United States and put inside China to destroy us. There's something about that that's a simple narrative um, that helps people find stability within a, a very complex and shifting world. It, it allows for a sifting of when we're getting information from all sides that we can't process it. It gives us a way to narrativize that, that information and to select out what we choose to believe and what we choose not to believe. It's also it's also a way I think to comprehend the incomprehensible. Um, you know that's way above your head because I certainly couldn't sit here and tell anyone the ins and outs of the workings of the coronavirus and how it spreads, for example. Um, there's just too many factors. There's too many experts. Too much expert knowledge for one person to really know. But to have a conspiracy theory, that's very easily communicated. 
So I, I think I think it's more and, and if you look at if you look at it historically, and this is why I think looking at these things historically is really important, you can see certain periods of history where conspiracy theories became bubbled to the top and when they kind of you know gone went to the bottom, they're still always there. Or what conspiracy theories, what narratives or tropes peak and rise up to the surface and which ones don't, right? Um, you know, how, how governments use, I mean, the Bolshevik government was a perfect, Stalin's government is a perfect example of this, of like how the conspiracy, the, the, the mind, the mentality of conspiratorial thinking begins to become a form of governing, <laughs> right? The belief that, belief that conspiracies are everywhere. Now that, that idea, like for me in looking at that, it's to say the Stalinist government sees itself as very, very vulnerable and very, very weak. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for me, it's it's more about what that se- what these the prevalence of this kind of thinking says about the, the times we're in. Combating, you know, this conspiracy conspiracy theory or another, I just don't know what to do about that because the media scape is such that, you know, if you want to believe something, you can find it somewhere. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Um, with this unprecedented uh, pandemic, uh, it comes at an interesting time for Russia. You know, um, they had to raise uh, the retirement age. Um, you know, the, the economy is still reeling from you know the, uh, the U.S. and European-led sanctions and so forth. Um, and I believe the May 9th parade for this mm-hmm. year, for the 75th anniversary of you know the victory in Europe, um, I believe was canceled. Yes. Um, how do you think? How do you think this affects like Putin's like standing his government, his administration, and the Russian people as a whole? I mean, this is a really interesting moment, right? Because until a few weeks ago, there was supposed to be a vote for a new constitution. <laughs> and that's totally der- derailed, in fact, to most part that I don't even think anybody's talking about anymore. Mm-hmm. And and so this was this was supposed to be part of the un, unrolling of whatever Putin has planned for the future. Nobody really knows, um, but he was certainly erecting various options. Um, you know, it 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 does pose a major question at the very moment where you're kind of solidifying in whatever your choice in your political future or whatever that future may be. It gets completely derailed by this pandemic. And now the government is put to a test. So the question will be, you know, when when all of this settles down, hopefully at some point, and that, of course, remains to be seen. You know, if you look at the front pages of the New York Times today, um, how are people going to evaluate the performance of the Russian government? And are they going to say, are they going to be more apt to say, you know what, I'm fine with another 12 years of this guy. Maybe somebody else might emerge out of all this, which is a possibility. Because one of the things that Putin has been very good at is is preventing any kind of rival from kind of rising as, as a competitor politically. Um, I think it's completely in terms of the Russian opposition, which likes, which, you know, gets a lot of press in, in the West. I mean, it's non-existent. It just doesn't exist, uh, as a political force. And I mean, I would question whether it actually ever did, but now I think it's shown that it just doesn't exist. Um, it's very, it's very weak and dependent upon certain things. Uh, so you know, I think it I think it raises a lot of a lot of unanswerables um, in terms of what you know not only the end towards the end of the year to next year what happens, um, uh, and a lot of it I think depends on the performance of the because one of the things that I find interesting and and I don't know I I'm, I'm I would imagine some of my friends might disagree with this, but the my impression is that Russians actually expect things from their government. <laughs> they and, and, and what I mean by that is that they actually expect something in return, right? They expect the government to do this and that when there's a crisis. Um, 
Whereas I, my impression amongst Americans is that they actually don't expect to have the, the bar is very low for expectations. Um, so I, I wonder if, if that's the case, if I'm right, I wonder how that will play out in terms of how people evaluate their expectations versus the results. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's only when kind of we feel the most powerful that oftentimes we're surprised and let's say like toppled or mm-hmm. not to say that that will happen. Yeah. But, uh, you know, who knows? And and that's the other problem too. Like, let's say there is a lot of kind of dissatisfaction with the Putin government. Okay. So what happens now? Like, how do they, you know, there's, they're not going to be voted out. There's not going to be a revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how does this work out? At, it's going to be a top, worked out at the top somehow. So how do they either A, justify it, continue to, and I think this is one of the things that Putin has had a problem with in the last several years. And that is, how do you continue to justify his existence? So Crimea provided a, you know, a kind of plug (laughs) and then that faded, you know, so what is, what are they going to, how are they going to reinvent them, you know, himself or, or his, his people, his circle to justify their continued existence? And I think that's the, and and the, the pandemic has made that question, I think, even more urgent. All right. Um, I would. I would love to continue this uh, conversation and like I've uh, immediate follow-ups to what you just said regarding the Euro-Asiatic Union and uh-huh. uh, well, maybe Ukraine and uh, Belarus fits in, Kazakhstan and um, the rest. Um, but uh, since we're running out of time right now, how can people find you and, and your work? Okay, well, um, you could uh, listen to the podcast. You can go to the website srbpodcast.org. Or you can just search on your favorite uh, podcast app, SRB Podcast. It's probably the best way and easiest way to find it and subscribe there. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, though I'm less active on Twitter because I think it's a cesspool of nothingness. Um, again, I, I get when I when I don't see any when it doesn't interest me, I kind of like fade away. Uh, and Twitter is one of these places. Uh, but you can, you know, you're welcome to follow me on there. It's uh, Sean's Russia blog, at Sean's Russia blog. Um, or, you know, if you feel free, send me an email at Sean's Russia blog at gmail.com. And I'd love to, you know, be in contact and have have conversations and things like this. So, And if you have any recommendations on people I should have on the podcast, please send them to me as well. Absolutely. And I know uh, a perfect one, Douglas Smith. No, I've had uh, Doug on. Oh, you've before. had? Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had him on. I did his Rasputin book. Yeah. And he has a new book on uh, the famine. The, the Russian 20, Yeah, American aid to the Russian famine. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to interview him in some capacity. I like Doug a lot. I think he's, I think he's great. Yeah, he's, uh, he's great. Um, yeah, I loved his book. Um, well, the two that were just mentioned and former people. Yeah, I interviewed him about that. I don't know if I did that for the new books or did it for mine. I can't remember. But I did interview him about that as well. Um, it, it, that former people book has one of my favorite images. And I'm hoping I'm not mistaking it. But there's this scene that he relates where during 1917, there's these peasants that go and ransack their landlord. And they 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 drag him using the uh, entrails of the up of a pig or something like this. It's just this oh. amazing image of, <laughs> of <Yeah>. like revolution, <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. So that was a very, very vivid, vivid image that I always remember from that book. But uh, no, he's great. His Rasputin book is, is really excellent. Um, and something a long time coming that somebody actually dealt with, with that, guy in a serious yeah. manner <laughs> so kind of remove the mystique and uh-huh. uh, the book the former people um the way the reason why i found it is because of uh, i felt that like well, why is the Re- russian empire why does it feel so far away to me mm-hmm. as just my grandparents who were born like 20 years after right and it shows how they eradicated the history yeah um, but sean um i had an incredible time speaking with you thank sure. you so much for you yeah. know taking the time um i would love to do this again for sure Whenever you'd like. Uh, yeah, just um, I'll yeah I'll, I'll reach out to you. You reach out to me. Um, yeah, I look forward to listening to your work. Okay. All right. Cool. Okay. All right, Mike. Take it All easy. Right, thank you so much. Yeah. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye bye.
Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Culture Cafe podcast, and I truly hope you enjoyed the show. If you learned something new from it, I would really appreciate it if you leave us a five-star rating and a sincere review so that more people can find it across the podcast platforms. To get in touch with me, please go on culturecafe.com, that's cafe with two Fs, or email me directly at nyculturecafe at gmail.com. Take good care, and I'll see you back here next week.